Welcome to the Logic and Larry podcast on this cool, cool and crisp Tuesday before Christmas. We are only a few days away from Christmas, one of the my favorite holidays. Most people's one of their favorite holidays, and I'm happy to be here with you for this little special edition commentary, just kind of off the cuff, talking about some of the current events that have happened. This is going to coincide with the new Logic and Larry Facebook group, which is going to just be a place to share dialogue about issues and things of that nature, which will be happening today. And just wanted to run through some of the current events that we have and make sure I said hello to everybody before the holiday. Of course, we're going to have part two of the Rick interview. That's going to be coming after Christmas. Rick and I discussed that and uh, we think that's best. So we'll get to that. There's plenty of content on the way. There's plenty of new interviewees on the list. And it's going to be a great new year. Hopefully much better than the year we just came out of. So thanks for joining me. Obviously, everything I say in this podcast is strictly my own personal opinion, does not reflect or convey the opinions of any other entity, any other person, or anybody else, and it is not spoken in any kind of professional capacity whatsoever. The news of of this week, first of all, we have outgoing Attorney General Bill Barr, who many have criticized uh, throughout his tenure as Attorney General of kind of being an enabler of Donald Trump and somebody who participated and lended some form of legitimacy to the voter fraud allegations when he encouraged AUSAs to investigate any alleged instances of of voter fraud, things of that nature. He's resigning on his way out, interestingly. One of the things that he said was that he sees... He sees no need to have any special counsel appointed to investigate president-elect, future president of the United States, Joe Biden. He sees no reason to appoint any kind of special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden. Now, interestingly, Hunter Biden himself did come out after the election, say that the FBI, I believe it was the FBI, it could have just been the IRS. Some entity was was looking into his tax returns, which didn't come as a surprise to most people. But Barr now says there's there's definitely no reason that he can see that we should be looking into Hunter Biden. There's no reason that we should be appointing a special counsel to look into Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, the Biden family. And, you know, look, if there was need to do so, I'm sure we would do that and it should be done. On the other hand, this back and forth nonsense that we keep hearing about where one, whatever side loses wants to nail the winner to the wall and just disrupt things for four years plus with false allegations and investigations and things of that nature is just, we got to break that cycle. All right. If we ever want to just get back to some semblance of normalcy you know, thrive as a country economically, socially, in any in any way. We've really, really, really got to. Um, we've really, really got to to break that cycle. Now, some say it started during Trump to delegitimize his presidency. Others say it started during Obama, where the level of obstructionism was at unprecedented levels. Look, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it started primarily under President Obama's tenure. The ridiculous 
allegations regarding his citizenship, the ridiculous allegations regarding, you know, not allegations per se, but the ridiculous obstructionism, obstructionistism, <laughs> what's the word, I don't know, but the ridiculous level of obstruction. Um, was unprecedented during the Obama years, and we saw it uh, somewhat happen during the Trump years. Uh, with the Trump years, though, there were there. Look, you can say whatever you'd like. No, I'm not. I don't know who is saying that Trump was not actually elected president in raw numbers. Right? No one said that the election, in and of itself, the actual most cast were fraudulent votes or miscounted votes. Hillary Clinton, to be sure, conceded that election shortly after the results were projected. What the hang-up was, was whether Russia had interfered in the election. That was the hang-up. And, and whether the Trump campaign had in any way collaborated with the Russian operation. Now, contrary to the way Barr summarized the investigation and contrary to the way that Trump supporters want to spin it now in hindsight, the fact is that the Mueller investigation did in fact uncover and did confirm, as many of our intelligence agencies already had, did confirm that there was interference in the 2016 election and it was perpetrated by the Russians. And it was in the form of troll accounts, uh, fake social media accounts, uh, marketing, other influences, the leak of primarily and maybe most significantly for 2016, the leak of the Democratic you know, DNC emails, which leaked out slowly and painfully and, and did a lot of damage to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, this was primarily facilitated through WikiLeaks, through Julian Assange. And that's just a fact. That was long speculated about. That was long the theory. I read an article in the New Yorker, I guess a summer or so, or maybe almost a year before the actual investigation report was released. And it, it outlined many of the same things we already knew. Now to be sure, Mueller investigated and indicted several Russian operatives for interference. Now several Trump operatives were also indicted and some convicted. Some spent time in prison for various indiscretions during the campaign. Now, does that mean that there was a smoking gun that tied Trump himself to the Russians? No. No. And, and the investigation did not find that. The investigation did not say that he was exonerated fully, but they said there wasn't enough there to bring any formal charges or to establish that concrete connection. So to be fair to Trump, there was no connection in that regard. But the Russians did interfere. They did interfere on Trump's behalf and several members of the Trump campaign. Now, there was communication between Roger Stone and intermediaries to Julian Assange, things of that nature, right? And the fact is that when you look at various operations that have turned out to be criminal throughout world human history, sometimes the per people at the top or those perpetrating the indiscretions are hard to linked to, right? They're hard to establish a pattern to because that's by design. Now, to be fair, senior Trump officials certainly have some of those vague links that we've found. That includes Roger Stone, people of that nature, right? Other people like Trump himself and, and Trump Jr., that those connections have not been established. So it's fair to say that Trump 
for for whatever you think of him, the investigation did not establish any clear link or any evidence that he was directly involved, and that's just a fact. That's a fact. Now, did he violate campaign laws with Michael Cohen regarding the cover-up of the Stormy Daniels issue? That's another investigation, and that's not over yet. And it's not the same thing, though, right, as Russian interference. And, and why do I—this is a tangent, right? It's a tangent. And why do I go on a tangent like that when we have news from today? The only reason I go on that tangent is— the bar news, right? Saying we don't need a special counsel. We don't need to cast dispersions on the Biden family. We don't need to investigate them and we need to break the cycle. The reason I say that is, look, some might want to frame the Trump investigations or the Mueller investigation as some sort of political maneuver to delegitimize Trump based on no credible evidence. But that's simply not true, right? And that's because of all the things I just said. There was credible evidence. There was reason for an investigation. In fact, Barr conducted an investigation of the investigation for that precise reason, right? Barr conducted an investigation into the officials who conducted the Trump investigation to determine whether there were any discrepancies, indiscretions, or things that were criminal. Only one individual was indicted, and that was because he summarized an email from somebody incorrectly. He summarized it incorrectly to the point that one could say his summarization of the email was... Um, a lie. You could say that. If you actually read the details and you understand the technical things, you know, maybe it wasn't exactly an outright lie. And look, that's the same thing that they got the initial guy in the Trump uh, campaign, the Mueller investigation for. I forget the name of the guy. He was a low-level guy. They got just for lying. It's, it's similar to that. It's a technical type thing. But anyway, he's been fired and he's been prosecuted. So... But that was the only one out of the whole bar investigation that was deemed to have done anything wrong. And the investigation itself was not deemed to have been based or premised upon illegitimate uh, evidence or illegitimate leads. So, so the investigation was justified. And the outcomes of the investigation, which did not link to Trump, true enough, but did indict several members of his inner circle and did indict several Russian operatives, was legitimate. So my point in saying that is we don't need another counter-investigation now with Biden in office simply to delegitimize him. And if that were to happen, that would simply be frivolous, right? And that's what Barr is saying. Barr is saying it would be frivolous. Don't, don't continue this cycle for no reason. Let's move on. And I think most people, despite Trump still tweeting as of, I think, even yesterday or today that there's big news out of Pennsylvania, massive fraud, whatever he's saying, which is nonsense. The Electoral College has already voted. They voted in favor of Biden. This thing's over. OK, this thing's over. You may have some senators like Tommy Tuberville, who has no business being a senator. You know, saying that uh, they're going to challenge it, but it's, it's not going anywhere. Mitch McConnell has already said it's not going anywhere. So the fact is, this at long last presidency and this entire turmoil is, is, is going to be over. And it's time to move forward. And that's that. So that's one of the news articles that came out with Bill Barr. And, you know, for anything, you know, you could criticize him. And, and there's plenty of reason there that people might want to. This, I think, made sense. And he did it. So that was his statement on, on that going forward. What else do we have? Well, I'm going to get to the stimulus because the stimulus is a hot button issue. And the stimulus is almost the main reason I even got on the mic today to, to talk to you and to release an episode right before Christmas. Because there's so much going on about the stimulus, stimulus, so many news articles, so many questions that I thought we should address it. But before we get to that, I wanted to address the 
the nonsense happening in Oregon once again. Oregon just seems to be a hotbed of, of unrest. And, and look, unrest and protest is, is one thing. It's a constitutionally guaranteed right to protest. All right? So I'm not in any way saying people shouldn't be able to protest. But for some reason in Oregon, we have these violent upheavals where people feel the need to destroy property, bash windows, storm state buildings, things of that nature. Only this time, this week, those doing that were right-wing groups rather than left-wing groups. And four individuals were arrested for various charges, including trespassing, disturbing the peace, things of that nature. They are still looking for other individuals who have been identified, not yet apprehended, who are wanted for assault, some on reporters and other people. And these violent vigilantes in Oregon stormed a state building, as far as I can gather, broke windows, destroyed property to protest the government in Oregon passing certain laws and mandates to combat COVID-19. And they did so in a disorderly, violent, and destructive manner. And I will continue to say, no matter what your cause, no matter what your angle, no matter what your grievance, you are not, and I will not condone, and it is not condonable to destroy public property or any property for that matter and to act in a destructive and violent manner that's not how you do it and i and you i can't ever condone it so i'm glad these people were arrested i'm glad they'll be prosecuted and it's just it's insane that you know look both these groups do this both these both the left and the right continue to do this right and, and one of the things I find insane is, you know, while most of us are, are worried about how we're going to pay our rent, how we're going to get through the pandemic, we're worried about, you know, the holidays. Maybe we're not worried. Maybe we're having fun. Maybe we're getting ready for the holidays. Maybe we're celebrating with our family and loved ones. Maybe we're enjoying life just a little bit, which is okay, right? It's okay to sometimes enjoy life. It's okay to sometimes say, hey, it's good to be alive. It's good to live in America. It's good to be in the holiday season. That's okay, right? You don't always have to be angry. You don't always have to have some grievance, some issue. Not always, right? While we're all doing that, you have these people. This con- Every time I turn on the news, every time you browse through the news, there's some article, there's some news story that, that groups crashed. It's always clashed. It's always protesters and anti-protesters right it's stop the steal protesters and then anti-protesters or it's you know social justice protesters and anti-protesters and then they clash that's the word clash and somebody gets shot somebody gets stabbed somebody gets punched somebody gets maced somebody gets tased and people are hurt people are in hospital hey what what are we doing what are we doing? This, this, these little mini rumbles. I call them rumbles. In the 1950s sense of the word, the link, the link Ray sense of the word, right? This rumble. Like, I'm going to meet you at this state, in this town, at this time. We're going to have a rumble. What do you, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's just senseless violence against each other. It doesn't get anywhere. Just people wind up dead and arrested, incurring charges, incurring injury. For what reason? It's getting ridiculous. It's already ridiculous. Set a fever pitch ridiculous. And it's, you know what it is. When I talked about the Russians meddling in the election 2016, one of the things they did was they'd set up online these protests that were fraudulent, but it would attract people who would show up just to rumble. 
and it just causes unrest in our society. So these physical protests are 100%, 100%. These physical protests, 100%, are an outgrowth of the internet beefs and the internet arguments and the internet echo chambers clashing in some kind of almost cataclysmic event all the time. When you're in your echo chamber for so long and all of a sudden you cross a line on a comment section and boom! I mean, you can't even go on a normal news story comment section on any issue, anywhere. Some of the good-hearted stories are good. You know, those, you you get a lot of nice comments. If it's anything at all newsworthy that's not like a warm-hearted story, and even some of the warm-hearted stories aren't safe. But if you go to some of the... You won't escape it without some nut coming in saying something about Trump, saying something about gun laws, saying something about those libtards or those republicans or those trumpies like you can't get on any news article without that and then and then a fight breaks out right and then a fight breaks out we're just in this and i'm sick of people also calling it's a hyper partisan hyper partisan very divided nation that's too an academic that's too academic of a term okay it's just a bunch of people running around like chickens with their head cut off believing nonsense being hypocrites not being logical not being empathetic not being utilitarian, not being in any way compromising, going out there, believing a bunch of nonsense, and then lashing out at each other like juveniles. That's what it is. That's all it is, all right? You don't have to be academic about it. That's what it is, and it needs to stop. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous behavior. Now, one of the interesting things about this protest in Oregon is it's kind of funny It's kind of funny if it weren't so sad. You see all these people coming out on the left and saying, well, these people are violent. These people are terrorists. These people are destroying public properties. People are are breaking things. And there shouldn't be any bail fund for these people. There shouldn't be any support for these people. These people are terrorists. And guess what? I 100% agree. I wholeheartedly agree. These people are domestic terrorists. They're breaking things. They're destroying things. Well, well, when the left destroys things and breaks public buildings and storms things and throws weapons and smoke bombs and mace and things at police and throws bottles at police, well, guess what? Guess what? That's the same thing. That's the same thing. I'm not talking about protest. These right-wing people have a right to protest the state rules being passed outside the court, the courthouse of the city hall peacefully. They have the right to protest. And people on the left have the right to protest. They have the right to take to the streets and to protest their grievances and to protest uh, the government for redress of said grievances and to protest the police and to demand change. What they don't have the right to do is throw things at police, break windows, vandalize property. They don't have the right to do it. And I've been consistent, and most level-headed people have been consistent, that anybody who does that on any side is acting in a criminal matter and should be prosecuted and should not be allowed to do it. But I find it interesting that people on the left are very quick to set up bail funds for people committing those same acts, to justify those same acts, to act as if those acts are the outgrowth of a peaceful ideology, etc., 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 but when the right does it, they see the flaws, right? And the same things, the same things true on the other side. I just don't hear as much of the hypocrisy on the daily basis. But it's there. The hypocrisy exists. Let's not be honest. The same people who call the, the, the left-wing protesters violent and, and outrageous and unruly, 
don't say anything about the right-wing protesters and almost act like they're justified. In fact, some of the right-wing protesters breaking the windows are some of the very same people who criticize the left-wing protesters. And it's all happening in Oregon for some reason. Maybe because in Oregon, Washington said it's so far west that there's more of an anti-government sentiment in general. Which I bet, if you looked at it from an anthropological, logical perspective, you probably would find some parallels there, right? There probably is some general derivative of anti-government sentiment overall that affects the way that both left-wing and right-wing groups protest and how they lash out when they're, you know, unsatisfied, dissatisfied with the government. That may be why we see so much in Washington, Oregon, but it doesn't change the fact that when either side engages in violent or destructive behavior, that it is not, it is not to be condoned. Now, when we talk about, you know, whether we understand why and whether the underlying reasons are more understandable for some than others, yes, there's, a, there's an avenue to have that discussion. Of course there is, there is right? Of course, sometimes when people lash out, there's a justifiable undertone that we can ascertain, and other times it seems a little more outlandish. But in no circumstance, in no circumstance, whether the underlying frustration is justifiable or not, is the destruction ever justifiable? And, and people are always quick to point, well, what about the American Revolution? That was founded on violence and all that. Even during the American Revolution, there were people who did not advocate for violence. There were some that did. There were some founding fathers who advocated for violent upheaval. There were other founding fathers who went about things more technically, tactically, academically, and legislatively, who were not big proponents of general, senseless, unorganized violence. Okay? And John Adams is one of them. Not Samuel Adams, but John Adams. There's a reason he defended the British soldiers after the Boston Massacre, but then still was one of the founding fathers of this country. He also didn't advocate for slavery and did not own any, as far as I know. So there's different people, even in the founding of America, and I'm just one of the people who doesn't condone destruction and violence. Now, if the government literally, if they stole a free election or were turning into a legitimate fascist country, i.e. one party rule, right? Or, you know, succeeded in usurping the will of the people in a dem democratic republic. That's different, right? That's different. And it still wouldn't be, it still wouldn't be com commendable to go out and just destroy private and public property, right? There'd have to be a standing physical standoff with those trying to take away our freedom, and that's completely different. But that's not happening right now, okay? The mechanisms of democracy are still in place in this country. The government is still functioning. Representative democracy is still functioning. People are still having free elections. Despite how hard it has been, we've had a relatively effort, I wouldn't say effortless because there was a lot of effort, but a relatively smooth free election without much threat to its sovereignty. So at this juncture, there's absolutely no reason to be destroying things and acting physically with force. And these people in Oregon are dis disgraceful. 
And if you don't see the hypocrisy of supporting one form of destruction with the other, then I don't know what to tell you. Just embrace it and recalibrate and come back better. But don't be too hypocritical. Don't do it. And I'm just tired of these rumbles taking place all over the country and this ridiculousness and destruction. It's absurd. It puts people at risk. It puts private citizens at risk. It puts first-line responders in the form of law enforcement at risk. It puts people caught up in the middle at risk. And most importantly, it doesn't accomplish anything positive, ever. Protest does. Disruptive protest does. Certainly does. Social diso diso socially disobedient protest even can. But destructive, violent protest is not protest at all. It's rioting, and it doesn't solve anything. At all. So, that's what I'll say on that. Now, now on to the stimulus. On to the stimulus. So, Congress finally did pass a stimulus. A second stimulus package this week. And, and I, I, I just, I want to go through what was, what was in it. And I want to go through some of the issues with it. Now, there are issues with this stimulus, right? There are things in, not in this stimulus that people have a problem with. And I think there is some justifiable criticism that's coming out about this stimulus. On the other hand, I find the general focus on what the problem is to be another completely kind of misguided criticism that's, that's missing the point, right? So... They did come out with a second stimulus. Congress reached a bipartisan agreement, finally. Now, one of the biggest sticking points, or I should say two of the biggest sticking points in the negotiations, which had long derailed this stimulus from coming to fruition, which have finally, I think there was a, there was finally a mutual compromise with regard to the second stimulus. stimulus. There was a mutual compromise. And that compromise was, for a while, Republican leaders had been fighting for liability protections for employers. And what that would entail would mean that it would, what that would entail would be that employers could not incur liability if an employee were to get sick from COVID or if there was a COVID-related issue that somebody dealt with, they would not be allowed to sue their employer or, you know, say the employer was negligent in providing safety or negligent in putting people at risk or negligent in reporting to people the risk they were facing, etc., etc., etc. The employer could not be held liable for said negligence. That was something the Republicans wanted in the stimulus bill. Now, for good reason, for good reason, that was decried as a, as a bad provision for the public, for the people. And I think that it shouldn't have been in there. And Democrats were right to fight against that provision being in any stimulus bill. You know, it, it stands to reason. And no matter what the situation is, there are some instances where liability needs to be limited because there's a inherently dangerous activity that needs to take place and somebody needs to do it. And if they don't have some form of liability protection, it's not worth it for them in any way. On the other hand, the vast majority of situations that occur between humans, there should be some level of care, right? And some level of negligence should always be liable 
to be to be attacked, right? I mean, and what I mean by that is is my my choice of words wasn't flowing very eloquently there. But the fact is that every employer or any other entity or any other human should always be expected to operate above the threshold of of negligence. They should not be negligent in anything they do. So if an employer during a, during a pandemic should be liable for the same negligence as an employer outside a pandemic. If you're going to employ people and you're going to put them to work and you're going to do so during a pandemic, you should operate with a standard of care for your employees that if you fail to do so, you should be liable to compensate them for that. That's just a very basic principle of a free society. It's a long-held principle. It's a long-accepted principle, and it should stand. So there's no reason that employers should be shielded from liability. If you're going to operate, you need to do so with a level of care to your employees. So anyway, Republicans are pushing very hard for that. On the other side, Democrats had been pushing very hard for substantial substantial state and local aid that's aid in the form of money to state and local governments that's cities that's counties that's states state governments right they had been fighting for a substantial amount of state and local aid and a lot of the reason they were criticized for it right because the political argument and the political posturing they were it was said that in fighting for state and local aid democrats were delaying aid directly to people direct aid to people and that was the political football that's how republicans tried to spin it right but the fact is that democrats were fighting so hard to get state and local aid passed as part of one big stimulus bill because they fear and probably rightfully so, they fear that if they didn't get it in the main stimulus package, that Republicans wouldn't even come back to the table, wouldn't bring anything to the vote to, a, to the floor for a vote on state and local aid going forward. Now, I don't that remains to be seen, right? There are certainly people on both sides who think state and, and local aid is important, but there are people on the Republican side who don't don't want to do it. The president certainly doesn't want to do it to certain states. This, there's this idea that they're going to reward them for financial, you know, mishandling their budgets, which is absurd. This is an unprecedented pandemic. Everybody needs aid regardless. And here's the thing. If, if you don't give state and local aid, people who work in those governments or, or are employed or paid by those governments are going to lose their jobs. There are going to be more people who don't have the money to spend to stimulate the economy. And there's going to be all kinds of problems. Services are going to be cut to those who already lost their job and to other things. So there's a lot of issues with that. But but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what happened was both sides agreed, look, we'll drop the liability for employers if you drop the state and local government. And we'll drop the state and local government if you drop the liability to employers. And they did that and they came to an agreement. Now, some other things were compromised on, right? And that was the... The $600 augmentation for unemployment benefits, which was which was initially $600 regardless, right? It wasn't up to $600 to make you whole from losing employment. Just everybody on unemployment gets an extra 600 bucks a week. Look, so some people were getting still less than they made if they made a good amount of money. Some people were getting equal, but a lot of people were getting above and beyond by a lot. 
what they had been making working. And many argue that that was also a disincentive to return back to work, because why would you go back to work if you're getting paid more to not work? That was a problem. That was a legitimate concern, right? And I'm not holding it against any American who rightfully collected their extra $600 and got ahead a little bit. Everybody deserves to get ahead. Take the breaks you can get. Take advantage of the situations you're in and do well. There's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, we're in a huge national deficit now, and that's going to come back around. That's going to come back around, right? Maybe in the form of inflation, maybe in the form of tax burden going forward to the middle class years from now. You have such a high national debt, it's a problem. And we have a skyrocketing national debt, partly because of the stimulus and partly because of the tax cuts that were passed at the beginning of the Trump Trump's tenure. So you got to be mindful of what you're spending. And if it's not really needed in every situation, you shouldn't just be spending it like that. So there was a compromise. Instead of $600 extra, Republicans wanted it to be calculated to actually make people whole rather than just a flat payment or zero augmentation. Democrats wanted even more augmentation or like a universal payment of a few thousand dollars a month or all kinds of things, or at least the 600 to continue. The 600 already expired in July. So this is almost a new benefit, by the way. Almost a new benefit that people are going to be seeing that are on unemployment. They're going to be getting an augmentation of $300 a week. What happened was the compromise took place and it wasn't zero. It wasn't 600. It was 300. Okay. So now there's 300 extra dollars for unemployment benefits. The rent moratorium was extended to the end of February now. And the rental assistance program was funded again to help people who can't pay their rent. What wasn't in there was, again, the state and local aid. And what wasn't in there was relief for student loan borrowers. If you have student loan payments, they've been suspended since the first stimulus. And not only that, if you're waiting for public loan forgiveness, public service loan forgiveness, the non-payments still count towards that. So that's a huge boost to the economy because many people have student loans. And if they don't need to pay them back per month, that's several hundred extra dollars in their pocket that can not only assist them with if, if they're struggling, but certainly can help to stimulate the economy because it's more spending money out there circulating. That was not included in this bipartisan bill. So there's plenty of student loan borrowers who are a little scared, upset by this, and, and I understand why, okay? The Trump administration had extended the moratorium on student loan payments through the end of January. So right as of right now, student loan borrowers do not have to pay in December. They do not have to pay in January. It's not in the new bill. Now, Biden could still get in and extend that by executive order the way Trump did several more months if he chooses to. So it remains to be seen whether Biden will do that. Although one might think he would, given the way he's campaigned on student loan reform. But that remains to be seen. And now the stimulus, the direct payment to Americans that is going to go out, is going to be $600 per person. It's going to be the same income limits as before. Anybody earning up to $75,000 a year is going to get a direct $600 payment. For married couples, if they make up to $150,000 a year, they'll get the full payment. Anybody earning from between $75,000 to $100,000 will get a reduced payment on a graduating scale. And then those making more individually above $100,000 will not get a payment. For those with independent, uh, dependent children, for those with dependent children, they will get an extra $600 per child. That's $100 more than the last stimulus. 
So, you know, you could still get a substantial direct payment if you have children, if you're married and you make less than 150000 etc., etc. I don't know if I said 120 or 150 before, but it's up to 150 for married couples. So, there's still a substantial payment going directly to Americans in the form of stimulus checks. Now, those should be going out in the next couple weeks, the same way they did last time. Hopefully, direct deposit, the same way you did your, your tax returns. And look, those stimulus payments were a last-minute thing. Those stimulus payments were not going to be in the second bill. And if they were, they were going to be only issued to those earning a certain, under a certain amount of money, right? This huge payment, and look, $600 isn't huge individually, I get it. But overall, it's a big amount of money the government's showing out to every American almost. This payment's going out to everyday people. Some still have jobs and making 65, and I'm not saying that you, you know, you have a job making 65,000, that your, your life is great, or that you couldn't use $600. Of course you could use it. So it's still going to help, and, and if you're struggling, and you're unemployed or something, of course it's going to help there, but of course it's not going to help as much as 1200 But 1200 wasn't going to get you through the year either. But here's the thing. All I see on social media right now all I see is com is complaining about the $600, right? And I, I'll refer to it, and I've been referring to it. It's another phrase I've coined. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. But I'd like to refer to it as what I would call, you know, it's, it's meme logic. <laughs> it is. It's meme logic. And what I mean by meme logic is just that it becomes this... This meme, memeable tagline, right? This memeable tagline. And it, it, it's, it's like a very simplified, easy thing to criticize. And you can make a meme about how $600 for this, but no money for this. $600 for this, and you paid this to this, and whatever. But it's missing the point, right? There's so many people out there saying $600 isn't going to pay my rent. $600 isn't going to get me through because I'm unemployed. And, and look, I understand that. I feel for, for those people, 100%. But the $600 is not the money that's intended to pay the rent or the money that's intended to compensate for unemployment. That's the unemployment benefits. And in addition to the $300 augmentation of unemployment benefits, the federal government's also picking up the tab for the extended unemployment benefits issued by the states, which save the states a lot of money and allow people to stay on unemployment for extended periods of time and to continue to receive it. So the money allotted for unemployment or being unemployed is separate from the $600 and it's there. And the money being allotted for rental assistance or to put the moratorium on evictions is there and it's separate from the $600. So this consistent complaining about only getting $600 and you won't be able to pay your rent or whatever, that's not what the money's for. Look, it's a stimulus payment. And what's a stimulus payment? A stimulus payment is given to stimulate. Stimulate what? Stimulate the economy, right? The $600 stimulus payment to stimulate the economy is not going out necessarily to just cover shortfalls, it's going out to put money in people's hands so that they, the consumer, can go out and spend the money and stimulate the economy, therefore increasing the amount of cash in circulation. 
and increasing the economic activity so that businesses can stay open, they can continue to hire people, etc., etc., etc. Essentially, the government is simply infusing the economy with cash, with liquid cash, so that the economy is stimulated. That's what the stimulus payment is. So all this obsession with how much money you're getting in your pocket, and I see this coming from, look, if you're struggling, I get it, you're disappointed in that. But if you're just John Q and you're still working, and you're still employed, and you're getting 600 instead of 1200 I don't understand what you're complaining so much about because you're getting a free $600. Quite frankly, they could have easily lowered the threshold. Okay, and people making over 50000 over 40000 or something shouldn't have even got it. And the people making below that should have got 1200 That would have maybe been more equitable because it would at least go to the people that needed more help. But if you're over that threshold and you're still getting $600 and you're still working, how about you criticize the shortfalls of the bill like state and local aid or that the rent moratorium's only been extended one month or instead of longer or something like that because the bill has criticizable aspects to it. But I just think it's another it's another example of people just being so focused on themselves and so narrow-mindedly focused on themselves rather than the big picture, rather than the actual problems with things. That, of course, they focus on the cash handout that they're getting. The cash handout that they're getting is what they want to complain about. Not the more substantive issues. I saw some people complain about, well, well PPP... The Paytech Protection Program, that's distributed horribly, right? And, and we saw it last time. It's going to big corporations. It's going to people that don't really need the money. That's a legitimate concern, right? How about the fact that the rental uh, assistance, the, the, um, the threshold amounts, right? The guidelines, the limits. There's criticism there, right? They're not getting the people fast enough. They're not encompassing enough people who need help with their rent. That's a legitimate criticism. All right, but none of that's the actual funding levels for the bill. That's the way in which the bill and the funding itself is dispersed. And if we're missing the point on what to criticize and what to demand change to, then we're going to miss the ball altogether. If we don't know what we want changed and we don't voice what we want changed, then that can continue to happen. Well, we're complaining about not getting 1200 but getting 600 So you're missing the point. You're missing the point when you stick to that stuff. And it's, it's a little bit agitating, right? $600 is not what's meant to keep you afloat. $600 is stimulus payment, right? It's a cash infusion into the economy. If you're on unemployment, you're getting unemployment augmentation. $300 a week. That's $1,200 a month. So if you're unemployed, you're getting $1,200 a month, not $600 flat, right? And that's on top of the extended unemployment benefits you're getting already. So we gotta, you know, some of this stuff, it gets us off course, guys. It gets us off course. And people in general have to be more informed about actual issues and stop with the meme logic. Stop with the ridiculous talking points that are missing the point, missing the ball. So let's talk about what's in this stimulus. I've talked about what's not in it, and you, you know people are agitated with $600. Let's talk about what's in, what's in this package, right? What's in this package? Let's go over it. So again, $300 weekly federal enhancement for benefits for 11 weeks through the end of March 14th. 
All right. It also extends and augments two other pandemic unemployment programs that were created in the original CARES Act. And they're both set to expire this week. That would, that affects, those programs affect an estimated 12 million people. 12 million people. And those are being continued through March. That's a lot of people who need the help that are going to get it. And they're going to continue to get it. All right. It also provides a federally funded $100 per week additional benefit to those who have at least $5,000 in annual self-employment income, but are disqualified from receiving pandemic unemployment assistance because they're eligible for regular state unemployment benefits. That's a convoluted thing, but it's more money to people who earn even side money being self-employed. They're going to get an extra $100 per week, per week, $400 a month, a month, not flat. It also gives states the authority to waive overpayments where the uh, claimant's not at fault. Again, the small business loans are continued to be funding. This time, there's a limit. To get one of those small business PPP loans, you have to have 300 employees or less. Now look, I get it. Most small businesses don't even have anywhere near 300 employees. Maybe the threshold should have been much lower. I hear you. I hear you. At the same time, look, when you when you fund big business or medium-sized business, they have 300 employees. That means they have 300 employees, right? That's 300 people with jobs, 300 mouths to feed, 300 people who probably support families and multiply that 300 by three or four for their children, mouths to feed. So just because it's a bigger company doesn't mean they shouldn't always get benefits now look if the company has excessive cash reserves on hand that's one thing but if a company's struggling because it has budgetary limits and it's meeting its budget or maybe below its budget right now in revenue and, and they might go under they should still get the aid because they're also employing people and those people need to keep their jobs so now they've limited to 300 or less so it cuts the ability for very large companies to get that money also in this bill is a $15 billion grant program for live venues. That's theaters, that's museums, that's live music venues, right? Those have been long at risk. So we're going to get money, much needed money in the form of $15 billion to those places. The initial grant, remember this is a grant, not a loan. A loan you got to pay back, a grant you don't. So this grant can total up to $10 million per eligible business. And a second grant can be up to $5 million if you need it. And during the first 14 days of the program's implementation, the grants will only be awarded to those who have faced 90% revenue losses. So the, the triage effect of these live venue grants is going to go to those most in need. If you've lost 90% of your revenue, pretty much been shuttered, which a lot of these places have been, unfortunately, they are going to be eligible for the money first, up to $10 million. That's a much needed cash infusion to those people. Now, schools, schools, $82 billion in this stimulus is allotted to schools, K through 12. $82 billion, K through 12. Democrats had asked for $100 billion and getting $82 billion. So it's a little bit of a compromise, still a substantial amount. Those are for schools to be able to a, if they've just struggled, keep them afloat. B, to outfit their schools for more safety and protective uh, measures for COVID-19. There's another $25 billion for rental assistance 
for individuals who lost their sources of income during the pandemic. And if there's issues with the way that this money's distributed, please feel free to comment and post and tell us what those issues are and, and you know, perhaps make those issues known to those in the media, those in government that can change the way the money's dispersed. But there's another uh, chunk of $25 billion for rental assistance. Now, nutrition assistance, better known as basically the, the food stamp program. The food stamps in this country are going to be raised by 15% for six months. All right, so if, you, if you're on food stamps and you need assistance with that, it's going to be increased by 15%. So there's an increase in your food stamp benefit for six months. And for families with children under the age of six who receive food stamps, they will be deemed to be enrolled in childcare for the purpose of benefits. They'll be eligible for benefits. So now, kids who are in school, who are getting lunch at school, and are not in school because of the pandemic, that money will go directly to the family so that the family can feed the children the lunch that they would have been getting at school. Although many districts are still providing the lunches to kids out of school, not all. But if you're not, then there's an extra payment going directly to the families for more uh, funding for children to eat properly and nutrition, which is good. There's also vaccine and hospital funding, right? So healthcare providers who have taken a large hit, hospitals who have taken a large hit due to COVID-19, they are gonna get funding. And it adds $3 billion more to the $175 billion fund for hospitals and healthcare providers for that purpose. There's also $20 billion for the purchase of vaccines so that they're going to be available to people who need it at no cost to the people. Now, the payroll tax repayment, which a lot of people had a problem with because the payroll reprieve that Trump instituted was something he'd long wanted, actually deals a big hit to our Medicare Social Security funding. Okay. Companies have to pay that back. So any way you slice it, either the, the funds for programs we care deeply about are decimated or employers have to pay it back. But if they have to pay it back, so does the employee. That's tough. It's going to be tough on people's wallets after this. So we get the reprieve now, but we got to pay it back later. And that's going to put a dent in people's paychecks. They would have had to pay that back by about March of next year. Now they have to the end of next year to pay it back. Why does that matter? Well, that matters because while we definitely have to replenish the funding for those important programs, making people do it in a couple months would mean their paycheck would take a huge hit for a couple months. If you can spread that repayment out over a year, each paycheck will take lesser of a hit. So they did that in the stimulus. So those are just the highlights of what's in the bill. There's a lot to like in the bill, and there's a lot to dislike in maybe how it's dispersed or what was left out of the bill. But if you're a liberal-minded person, just the fact that the liability isn't in there, the, the liability protection for companies, and all of the other expanded benefits are in there is a, is a win, right? And if you're a conservative worried about the national debt, first of all, this really isn't the time to be... I mean, look, you should always be concerned about the national debt within reason. This is definitely the time to provide stimulus. Everybody agrees on that, right? But 
there are some things in there that that were responsible, right? Responsibly paying benefits and responsibly issuing stimulus checks so as not to over over replenish the economy not to overpay so as to balloon the national debt even higher or lead to other budget shortfalls and other areas going forward so there's a lot to like and dislike but to simply boil the entire bill down to simply boil the entire bill down to just the $600 is not accurate it's not an actual discussion of the stimulus. And, and here's another thing. People just, I, I, they just don't seem to be able to grasp these days on either side. You don't always get what you want and all of what you want in a negotiation. That's not what negotiations are. It's not how you conduct them. That's not how they reach resolution. That's not how it happens. In every negotiation, people walk away not happy and happy. That's how it works. People have to understand that at any given time in this country, half the population and half the representatives, at least, don't agree with what you want. And if you break down the factions even deeper, it's even more fragmented, right? So there's all these competing interests that go into governing, that go into to crafting bills. And people are complaining about the f amount of foreign aid that's in the bill. Now look, that's another, that's another legitimate criticism, right? Why are we financing all of these foreign initiatives and not just domestic initiatives? Well, look, that's a competing ideology too, right? Are you protectionist? Are you isolationists? Or do you think America has a duty to help the people of the world, right? Should we be helping other countries because we have so much wealth? Should we be helping the world fight COVID-19? That's an open debate, right? But if you're altruistic, you would say yes, right? There's another reason, too. If you're tactical, you might say yes, because if the rest of the world continues to struggle with COVID-19, even if we're okay, well, then our trading partners are hurting, and then that affects our economy, right? And then we still lose jobs. And if they're struggling and drowning, it affects other things. Other, maybe they remember that if we need help on the medical side or the distribution side or et cetera, et cetera. So there's reasons to fund foreign initiatives too and help them battle the pandemic. And look, while everything's open to criticism, criticism and while some earmarked initiatives or concerns or considerations are the, you know, the pet causes of individual representatives. Well, look, that's how representative democracy functions. That's actually how it's supposed to function, too. Maybe it's not ideal, but we don't live in an ideal universe. So we don't live in an ideal world. And the fact is that while many people love the campaigning, they love the campaign season, they love to, to profess what their ideals are. They love to profess their own beliefs and their own pet causes. The fact is that actual governing and after the campaign season is over, the actual business of working in a public office, the actual business of governing is not glamorous and it's not easy and it's not about pounding the table and pounding your chest about what you believe, right? You take what you believe to the table and, and what you believe guides you in your negotiation. There's certain things you'll never give in on, but there's certain things you will to get certain things that you need. And the fact is that good government gets things done despite impasse and despite deadlock and despite argument. 
they get things done and it's not always ideal it's almost never ideal and it's not pretty but more people need to realize that the business of government that the job of government that the job of public service is to get things done for the people and to get help where it's needed and to help the society function and this bill is far from ideal but it's an example of two parties coming together fighting like hell but getting things passed that were needed we're all gonna get six hundred dollars or or less if you make more six hundred dollars directly paid to us in the next few weeks those unemployed are going to continue to get benefits and then augmentation of the benefits on top of that per week those who need rental assistance are going to get it those who are at risk of being evicted are going to have the moratorium extended. Now, again, there's problems with how the money's dispersed. There's going to be some people that don't get the assistance. That's a problem. That needs to be addressed. But if we're going to address that problem, we got to talk about what that problem is. That problem is not the people who are still employed getting only 600 instead of 1200 Those That problem is the people who are really at risk of losing their homes, not getting money due to some arbitrary or archaic guideline that should be reformed so that those people don't fall through the cracks. And if that exists, we need to address it. But those are the things going on. That's the stimulus. Now, the final thing I'll talk about is these anti-vaxxers. I can't take them anymore. I've had enough. I saw one meme the other day about how if this was a real pandemic and they weren't really just trying to manipulate us, then all the famous and powerful people would get the vaccine first. And the, quote, peasants, their word, would get the vaccine last. The fact that they're trying to give the vaccine to those more less fortunate instead of those more fortunate proves it's a hoax. It's a scam. It's a lie. You know what they missed? They missed the fact that on the other side, there's other people saying, well, how come AOC gets the vaccine? How come the government gets it? How come the president gets it? How come Biden gets it before the regular people? <laughs> Can't make it up. The fact is, the powerful people are getting the vaccine. Those in healthcare, those running healthcare establishments, the president, the government, they're getting it. They're getting it first. Getting it before me and you. So that meme doesn't make any sense. They're trying their best to come up with a guideline system that vaccinates those most at risk first or those who most need it. It makes sense, okay? Not everybody's going to agree on every single tier, but it makes sense. I'm last on the list, all right? I'm last on the list. I'm relatively young, although my hairline might say otherwise. I'm relatively young. I'm relatively healthy. All right? Although my scale might say otherwise sometimes. And I already had COVID. So the chances of me getting it again are less than other people who haven't had COVID. So I'm way down. I'm last on the list, okay? But that makes sense. I should be last on the list. Why the hell would I not be last on the list? Now, communities that are most at risk are higher on the list. They should be. And we're doing everybody a disservice if we keep spreading lies about the damn vaccine. People saying, well, how come they couldn't come up with HIV vaccine, but they came up with this vaccine? It's suspect. It's not suspect. Google's your friend. Google it. There's a reason they couldn't come up with an HIV vaccine. There's a reason. Read it. There's science, okay? There's, there's reading to be done. Read. Read more. Talk less. Read more. Talk less. I don't even come on here and talk to you until I've read about what I'm going to talk about. Otherwise, I'd be a clown, and I'd be spreading misinformation. And I don't want to do that. And I don't do that. 
And you shouldn't either. And if you see somebody doing it, you got to call them out. This anti-vax stuff is nonsense. This vaccine is going to be the only thing that gets us out of this nightmare we've been living in. Economically, socially, from a mental health standpoint, every everything. And most importantly, from a life or death standpoint of those who are passing away from this virus. So let's spread the right information about the vaccine. And let's knock off the meme logic. Let's knock off the meme logic. It's funny for a joke. It's ridiculous for actual issues. Let's stop it. I'm sorry, you know, I went on a political rant, but that's what you tune into me for, right? If you wanted to just have a cheery holiday, you wouldn't tune into me. So maybe some are listening after Christmas, and that's fine. But all that being said, look, I'm actually in a great mood. I'm enjoying my time off right now for Christmas. I'm loving it. I wish all of you a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, a Happy Kwanzaa, any other holiday that you you celebrate. I wish everybody a very, very happy New Year. I may or may not release another episode before the New Year. And I want you to enjoy, instead of engaging in the turmoil all the time and the rhetoric and the political issues and the news, which, look, of course you can do and you should continue to be informed. Enjoy time with your families and loved ones. Reflect upon the good you've done this year. Reflect upon more good that you can do in the coming year. Donate food. Volunteer for food pantries. Get thoughtful gifts for those you care about that mean something from a sentimental standpoint that they'll cherish. Just enjoy the fact that the shortest day of the year with the least sunshine is behind us and Christmas is going to celebrate that solstice event a few days late. And spend time with those you care about and just try to enjoy it. Watch a great movie, listen to good music, indulge a little bit in nice, good food, and try to enjoy everything that, that it is to be alive. I truly mean that. I'm in a great mood, despite some of my frustrations with current events. And I hope that all of you are in good spirits as well. We will get through this cold winter, but first we have the holidays to enjoy. And once we get through this cold winter, it'll be one of the most bright and optimistic springs I think we've maybe ever seen in any of our lifetimes. There's a bright future ahead of us as a country. There's a bright future ahead of us as a world. There's a bright future ahead of us as human beings. And we are but a cold night away from that bright future. So continue to better yourselves, continue to better those around you, and please, please, please have a very, very happy holiday season. I will talk to all of you very, very soon. I appreciate all of you listening, sharing, and being a part of this little family. And I'll speak to you soon enough. God bless. Nothing but happiness and well wishes to all. Good night.